Hello, everyone. We at headquarters wish you a joyous Feast of Tabernacles, and we give a special welcome to those of you who are observing the Feast of Tabernacles with us for the very first time. The kingdom of God is one of the major themes of our New Testament. And yet the concept that God has a kingdom and exercises sovereign power appears all through the Old Testament. But not long after Jesus began preaching, he emphasized the importance of the coming kingdom. I'd like you to turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount, first of all, in Matthew chapter 6. And this Sermon on the Mount includes what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Really, it is the disciples' prayer. And he teaches his disciples how to pray because they had asked him. They had noted that he prayed, and so they asked him about it. And he starts in Matthew 6 and verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray. And he didn't ask us to recite these words exactly, but to use it as an outline or a model. And he goes on, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Matthew 6, verse 9, and now verse 10. Notice, after addressing the Father, our first request is, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so daily, Christ tells his disciples to pray for the coming of the kingdom. And so we should. It's an important part of our entire focus as Christians. Though God ruled from the moment of creation, the sin of humankind brought about a separation from God, as Isaiah tells us. Sin separates us from our God. But through his prophets, God announced the coming of a son of David who would restore the kingdom of God to the entire earth. And that theme is variously was variously interpreted by Jews in the centuries prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He did not meet their expectations as Messiah, which contributed to his death. To understand how this happened requires a survey of the Jewish sects of the first century and how their theological and political thinking developed during the period between our Testaments, between the end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament, roughly a 400-year period called the Intertestamental Period. And during that time, various Jewish sects adopted and promoted various ideas of the coming Messiah, which I'm going to review with you today. And then we're going to survey what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and its relationship to the church in the Gospels. We're going to survey our Gospels in order. And the title of this sermon is What Jesus Taught About the Kingdom. What Jesus Taught About the Kingdom. First of all, the kingdom of God is God's righteous rule over his subjects. It is a kingship. In other words, it's an exercising of his sovereignty as the great universal king. And the word kingdom denotes nothing less than the exercise of divine rule in human affairs. So, say, Elwell and Yarborough, authors of a textbook we use here at a Living University. 
And it became the primary preaching subject of Jesus throughout his ministry. This was his primary theme and subject that he covered throughout his short ministry. In fact, he used the word kingdom over 100 times in our synoptic gospels. Now, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called that because they often cover much the same material, though with a different emphasis in each one. Jesus worked exorcisms and healings as evidence of his being the supreme representative of this kingdom. And in the Gospels, it is spoken of as at hand. At hand, but also and still in some way, yet to come. Yet to come. As we pray in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come is still to come. First of all, let's look at the religious philosophy of the Jewish sects of Judaism in the Second Temple period. It was multifaceted. Judaism of the intertestamental period was very complex. Indeed, being comprised of many religious and political groups and a multitude of ordinary Jews who belonged to no identifiable party at all. So says author D. Russell. So it was quite a mix. It was a complex issue. There were many religious and political groups. We're going to highlight the major ones of the first century. And there were many Jews who did not belong to any of them. First of all, let's look at the religious philosophy of the Pharisees. And I'll spell Pharisee for you. Capital P-H-A-R-I-S-E. E. Pharisees, P-H-A-R-I-S-E-E. The Pharisees were religious purists who worked to preserve and enforce the law, especially through the legal traditions for ritual purity. And they limited their social contact with the Gentiles on the one hand, but also they limited their social contact with the people of the land, as they're called in our New Testament, the Am Haaretz, the great unwashed people who did not follow the strict uh, teachings uh, exactly uh, as the Pharisees gave them. And so there was a distance between the Pharisees, between Gentiles and the people of the land. Theologically, the Pharisees were the party of the scribes, the scholars, the theologians who placed oral traditions on an equal footing, equal authority with the Hebrew Scriptures. And they believed in a last judgment and the coming of Messiah. They believed in both, the last judgment and the coming of Messiah. So in some ways, Jesus had more in common with them than he did with the other groups. Secondly, the Sadducees, spelled capital S-A-D-D-U-C-E-E. The Sadducees were the priestly aristocratic and predominant party, at least as far as power goes, though they were in decline at that time. And these were drawn from the rich and the landed people, and they controlled the temple. And from their number came the high priest as well. Unlike the Pharisees, though, they did not accept angels, they did not accept demons, did not accept resurrection, nor did they accept immortality because they did not find these mentioned in the Pentateuch. It's the only 
books of the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, that they recognized. And this limitation is described for us in Mark and in Acts on their beliefs. The Sadducees also did not believe in a coming Messiah. They did not believe in a coming Messiah. Only the Pentateuch was accepted as their scripture. And so they were not as favored by the common people as the Pharisees. Our third group are called the Essenes, spelled capital E-S-S-E-N-E. The Essenes were an extremely conservative, ascetic, monastic order of about 4,000 people living in isolation near the Dead Sea. This follows the Maccabean revolt against the Greek overlords between 167 and 160 B.C. And the Essenes saw themselves as God's true people, his true people. And they saw other Jews, even the temple elite, as enemies. The Essenes were strict, highly disciplined, diligent students of Scripture. They wrote commentaries on the Scriptures. They observed the law's precepts even more zealously than the Pharisees. They considered themselves the righteous remnant living in the last days. They looked ahead to a political Messiah or Messiahs, political Messiah or Messiahs. And they looked ahead to the end of the age. So these folks joined in the revolt against Rome in A.D. 66 to 70. And many of them were killed in the terrible slaughter uh, that the Romans inflicted on the Jews uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple burned in A.D. 70. So many of the Essenes were killed along with the people in the city. There is one more group I wish to tell you about, and that's the Zealots. The Zealots, spelled capital Z-E-A-L-O-T. The Zealots were freedom fighters, And they were super patriots who were not prepared to wait for other groups to return home rule to the Jews. And so they incited revolt against Rome, the zealots. They incited revolt against Rome. And their roots may go back to the Maccabean times when Jews who were zealous for the law took matters into their own hands and sought by any means, including violence, sedition, murder, even the taking of cities to promote God's cause in the land. And so the zealots were little better than terrorists. So that was the, a brief review of their religious philosophy. Now, a little bit about the political philosophy of each group. The relationship between the religious philosophy And its associated political philosophy among the various groups is also quite complex. First, the Pharisees. The Pharisees became partisans of any leader who would espouse their views. Any political leader who was inclined to promote what they believed in, they would support. For the Pharisees, ritual and custom 
and keeping of the Sabbath was not legalism, but a way to say no to the forces of Rome and to say yes to the God who had led the nation throughout its history to that day. So besides opposing separatism, our second group, the Sadducees, their interests were primarily political. They did not support separatism at all. So they're quite opposite to other groups. And they were primarily a political group. They enjoyed their association with their Roman overlords. And and they were uh, those who accepted the Greek culture, the Hellenistic party of the time. And so they were quite happy with the way things were. And the Sadducees did not want to rock the boat. Now the Essenes. The Essenes waited for the coming of two messiahs, a priestly messiah of Aaron and a royal messiah of Israel. A priestly uh, messiah who came from that long line of the priest Aaron and a royal messiah of Israel who would lead the sons of light, which is what they called themselves, the sons of light, against the sons of darkness, all the evil in the world, in a climactic battle for the restoration of the true sanctuary. That's what the Essenes believed. Now, the Zealots, politically, were religious and political patriots who did not think the Jews should be overruled by Rome and whose revolt, starting in A.D. 66, led to the fall and destruction of Jerusalem to the Romans in A.D. 70. So apparently they were unwilling to wait for the coming of a Messiah, and that was the Zealots. Now a little bit about Messianic expectation. What did these groups think in regards to the coming Messiah? The sects of Judaism understood the coming of Messiah, the so-called messianic expectation, in various ways, depending in large measure on their association with their Roman overlords. So they had different views about a, a Messiah to come, depending on how well they got on with the Roman overlords. There was a widespread belief, widespread belief, that God would send a chosen one, a Messiah, who would defeat the Romans and usher in a time of universal peace with the center of the world in Jerusalem. Again, quoting Elwell and Yarborough in their book. So there was a widespread belief that there would be this chosen one, a Messiah, who would throw the Romans out and usher in a time of universal peace with the center of Jerusalem, uh, the center of the world in Jerusalem. So that was going on. This is the religious undercurrents when Jesus arrives on the scene. And this was especially true of the Pharisees and the Essenes who followed many purification rites to prepare the world for the coming kingdom. They went through all these ablutions and washings and purifications to prepare the world for the coming kingdom. Now, some thought the kingdom would be brought by violence. Others promoted a more spiritual solution. So you had all these various views among the Jews before Jesus' coming. Many expected a prophet like Moses or Elijah 
and a king like David who would restore self-rule, glory, peace, politically or militarily. And Jesus, when people began to look to him as Messiah, even began to call him Messiah, was very uneasy with others referring to him by that title. Because, not because he wasn't the Messiah, but because he knew that all these religious and political ideas portrayed a Messiah very different than who he was. It conjured up a wrong impression of his mission. He was not going to be a political and military conqueror in his first coming. And so he actually asked people, don't tell anybody. I mean, he had heard them call him Messiah. And he says, don't say this to any man, as we will look at later. This is the called the, the Messianic Secret by scholars today. Now let's go to the book of John. I want to show you something. After Jesus began preaching, he works the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, all these hungry people. And in John 6, John 6 in verse 15, <clears throat> excuse me, when Jesus now had worked this miracle, fed those people, and uh, they came to him on a mission, as we'll see here in John 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. Now, you see, hunger was widespread in Judea at that time. And the fact that he could solve the hunger problem by working a miracle brought great acclaim to him. And the people said, surely this is the one, this is the Messiah who's going to rescue us from the Romans. And they wanted to come and grab him and forcibly make him a king. And he fled because he was not that kind of Messiah. It was not his time to seize the reins of political and military power when he came the first time. Many Jews at this time expected the kingdom of God to be brought in and enforced by Messiah, as I've said. And so they expected a number of things. One, they expected a person of power who had unlimited authority and no accountability. Two, they ex expected a person of status who was affluent, who perceived, and rather, who received preferential treatment. So he was affluent, received preferential treatment. This is what they were expecting. And three, they were expecting a national figurehead to lead them to victory and pride. A national figurehead to lead them to victory and pride. So say Alexander and Alexander. And Jesus turned their expectations upside down. Compare and contrast. One, instead of a person seeking status, he associated with the weak and the disabled by working miracles for healing, exorcism, and to feed the hungry. Two, instead of a life of high status, he was born in a stable and came to serve rather than to be served. And three, instead of routing the Romans from occupying Judea in order to preserve Jewish exclusiveness, he instructed his church 
to bring in outsiders as they repented and came into this body of believers and followers, including Gentiles. So what Jesus accomplished in his first ministry was so contrary to what the people were expecting. And brethren, this led, at least in part, to his death, which was an essential part of God's plan for Jesus coming the first time, which relates, of course, to the first festival, Passover. Now, when we look at the Gospels, we're going to survey them in order. Matthew 4 provides a contrast between how Jesus viewed his messianic role and the messianic expectations of the Jewish sects. For one thing, Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was not a kingdom of men, not a political movement, and it's going to be established on earth by God's work, not by human effort. And that was different than what many viewed and understood. Now let's go to Matthew 4 and verse 17. Matthew 4 In verse 17, we're going to work our way progressively through the four Gospels. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or as the New King James Morgan says, has drawn near. There was an aspect of the kingdom that called upon his hearers for immediate reaction. It's at hand. For those who heard him, they were to do something with this message. They were to respond. And he expected them to respond. So he called upon them for an immediate response from his hearers. But he was not the first one to do this. Look at Matthew 3 and verse 1. Matthew 3 and verse 1. His predecessor, John the Baptist, did the same thing. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. So both Jesus and his predecessor, John the Baptist, preached the same message, calling upon their hearers for an immediate response. So let's ask ourselves, have we, have you, have I responded to this message to repent and to turn to him in faith and believe the gospel. You see, this at hand applies to people that when they hear that truth and their minds are open, they need to respond and respond favorably to Christ's call. So he required that his followers then live changed lives which revealed the presence of Christ within them. So those who repented and accepted Christ's offer of entering the kingdom then formed a new group of followers, at the beginning primarily Jews, that he called the church. And we'll see the association of the church and the kingdom as we continue with our sermon. So Jesus taught throughout Galilee this good news of the kingdom while he was healing every sort of disease. Look at Matthew 4. Starting in verse 23. Matthew 4 and verse 23. Now Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. 
And notice how often his preaching is associated with healing and exercising demons. That those miraculous powers brought authentication to his message. And it gave the people, it gave Jesus a sense of credibility in the eyes of the common people. So Jesus went all through Galilee preaching this good news, gospel, good news of the kingdom. And here's what author M. Allen says, and I think it's very pertinent to our study today. Quote, The key to interpreting Jesus' view of the kingdom is to understand that Matthew 4, 17 and Matthew 4, 23 are summary statements of Jesus' message. When that message is considered as a whole, it is apparent that Jesus' teachings on the kingdom had a twofold emphasis. One, the standard of conduct for the kingdom now. This is going to be very evident in the rest of our sermon. He calls upon his disciples to live a certain way of life now. And two, the author goes on, the final consummation of the kingdom later. The final consummation later. End of quote. So this Feast of Tabernacles calls upon us to live kingdom virtues. The standards that Jesus taught his disciples are virtues. In fact, they are kingdom virtues. And we're going to see many of them as we proceed through our sermon. So in the Gospels, Jesus made it clear by announcing his death that he would not consummate the kingdom at his first coming. And those who didn't understand that were completely confused. When Jesus was crucified, they felt abandoned. They wondered, where is the kingdom? But he had been warning them before his death that he would fall into the hands of the Gentiles who would terribly mistreat him and crucify him. But that was an essential part of God's plan of salvation for mankind. But rather, Jesus' focus in his ministry was upon instructing his followers about the necessity of spiritual preparation through righteous living. That Christ wants us to live the kingdom virtues until the kingdom is fully established on this earth. And so that's what the church of God needs to do today. We are preparing spiritually for the fullness of the kingdom to come at Jesus' second coming, called the second advent. And yet, this power is now present in the lives of Christians in his church around the world and through all these thousands of years since the church was first founded. So the inauguration of the kingdom of God through the arrival of the Messiah was viewed differently by the various Jewish sects than by Jesus himself, as we see already in our study. And based in part on Old Testament prophecy, these sects worked in intertestamental, apocryphal meanings, uh, sorry, I should say apocalyptic meanings, intertestamental apocalyptic meanings, that is, end of the world, along with political agendas. There was quite a mixture, a mulligan stew, if you will, that did not match God's kingdom and what Jesus came to preach. And so there was a confusion among people when Jesus did not meet their expectations. So in his ministry, Jesus reestablished the kingdom of God upon spiritual principles which are lived by his followers now and will someday envelop this entire cosmos. The entire cosmos. 
So let us now, as we turn the corner in this sermon, examine what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and its association with the church. Two primary doctrines of Christian theology are the kingdom of God and the church of God. Primary doctrines. Now, through mainline Christian history, various interpreters have attempted to explain the relationship between these two, which they see portrayed in our New Testament. Beginning in the second century, church fathers, as they were called, such as Cyprian of Carthage in the second century, taught that the kingdom of God was the church. And this idea was cemented in the fifth century by Augustine. He wrote a book called The City of God. And listen to what he says. Quote, The church even now is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. Now that idea filtered through mainline Christianity for hundreds of years. And so it, during the time of the Holy Roman Empire, there was an easy association between political and religious power as a result of their thinking that the church was the kingdom. Based on the teachings and or writings of Jesus and Paul, though, it becomes evident that though these two are connected and related, kingdom and church, they're also distinct. They're related, as I'll show, but they're distinct. And when we catalog the scriptures comparing what Jesus taught in the Gospels with the writings of Paul, which come later, it reveals their association and their distinctions. And they provide a, a starting point from which to comprehend how they're used throughout our New Testament. It surprises many Christians to learn that Jesus, the founder of his church, only referred to his body of believers using the word church three times in our Gospels. And that's a surprise to many people. The word church in the Gospels occurs only three times, and we're going to look at them, and they're all in one book. They're all in the book of Matthew. Let's go to Matthew 16, verse 18. We'll look at the first occurrence. Only three times in the Gospels. Here's the first. Matthew 16, verse 18. Speaking to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, and uh, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, You're Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and on this Petra, meaning himself, Jesus says, I will build my church. First time word church occurs in our King James, New King James Bible. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's the first time. The church of God is built on Christ. He is that Petra. He is that rock. Now, later in the same book, over in chapter 18, we find the second and third usages of the word church in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. This has to do with 
church disputes and church discipline in this section. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And I'm not going on to elaborate on all of these verses today, but I want to survey these verses and show you their connection. Now, verse 17. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Second time church occurs in the Gospels. But if he refuses to hear, even hear the church, third time, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And that's it. Only three times in our Gospels. It's a surprise to many people. And yet, the church is built on Christ. Christ founded his church. So, the primary references of the church come later in the book of Acts and in the writings of Paul in our general epistles. Far more frequent is Jesus' usage of the phrase kingdom of God in the Gospels. In fact, over 80% of its occurrences in our New Testament, 80% occur in those three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Greek phrase for kingdom of God is basilia to theo. And it's equivalent to the Hebrew version, Malakut Yahweh or Malakut Samayim, kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven. And I'll explain that in a minute. Those were the original phrases. Now in this sermon, we will survey the Gospels and what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Let's go back to Matthew. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus referred to it most often using the term kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. Why? Matthew was written to a predominantly Jewish audience. Jewish Christians. And in the first century, Jews were reluctant to use the names of God. So they would circumvent that using what was called a circumlocution to go around it by referring to God by the term heaven, a more generic term. And so they would, instead of saying kingdom of God, they would say kingdom of heaven, a common Jewish circumlocution for the divine name. And so Matthew records that Jesus spoke this way to his audience and especially knowing that Matthew was written to a predominantly Jewish audience, he realized the sensitivities on the matter. And so he, he, he directed his wording in a way that would be of less offense to that kind of an audience. So Jesus called upon his hearers to repent for the kingdom was at hand, as we saw in Matthew 4, 17. It was at hand. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses that term again. Let's go to Matthew 5, the famous Sermon on the Mount. And he uses this phrase, kingdom of God, a number of times. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. These are the so-called Beatitudes. And the very first one, verse 3, says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God heaven so matthew has equated kingdom of god with kingdom of heaven 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who know their need of God. And so they call upon him and they trust him. He says, of such folk is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's drop down to verse 10. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he said that at a time when his ministry is just beginning. But through his ministry, the persecution mounts, not only against him, but against his followers. And then in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles, we read of this uh, open persecution, first from the Jews and then from the Roman government. And by the time Matthew writes his gospel some decades later, the persecution was strong from the Roman government, from general society against this new group of uh, Believers in Messiah. And so that had great meaning, verse 10, to those people who were being persecuted for doing the right thing, for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 18. Uh, Let's start uh, rather in verse 17. Jesus says, verse 17, Do not think I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, Hebrew letter yod, smallest Hebrew letter, or one tittle, which was an ornamental flourish of a pen on letters, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these, least of these commandments and teaches men so, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There it is again. But whoever does and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now here clearly, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has established the law for kingdom virtues. He did not remove one yod, not one tittle from the law. And righteousness involves this obedience to God by his teachings, his instruction. In Hebrew, called the Torah. So we are therefore to be commandment keepers, as Jesus plainly taught right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees were meticulous, but they went overboard many ways, and they didn't always understand God's principles, and they would put oral tradition on the same footing as the word of God. And so our faithfulness to Christ needs to go above and beyond even what the Pharisees showed in their own time. So right in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to stress kingdom virtues. Now, that sermon goes on for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then we read in Matthew 6 and verse 33, another part of it was this, Matthew 6, 33. But first... Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, in this case, Jesus uses, and Matthew records, the phrase kingdom of God. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus lays out that the kingdom needs to be a priority in the lives of his people as they prepare for the final consummation of the kingdom. And so, let's ask ourselves, do we seek the kingdom 
first above all things. This Feast of Tabernacles reminds us that it, we need to, that we need to have our focus on God's kingdom. And we need to be accomplishing God's work in the meantime and preparing for that glorious return of Christ to establish fully his kingdom all over this planet. So the kingdom is not just for those who call Jesus Lord. Matthew 7, Matthew 7, verse 21, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. To merely mouthing Jesus' name and claiming that he's your Lord is not sufficient. Not sufficient. As he says in verse 21, we need to do God's will and be obedient to the entire uh, word of God as taught in the Holy Scriptures. To live by every principle, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God in order to be true disciples and live kingdom virtues. So Jesus told his, his listeners that when he began preaching and working these miracles such as exercising demons, that the kingdom's power had come into their presence. Look at Matthew 12. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. Matthew 12, verse 22. Now, when he had departed from there, he went... Oh, sorry, uh, verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. He exercised that demon. And now verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. They falsely accused him of working this miracle by the power of Beelzebub, his enemies did. But he says, no, he had cast out that demon by the Spirit of God. And that was evidence that he represented the kingdom. He was the kingdom's primary representative on earth at that time, exercising kingdom power by expelling these demons. God is supreme over all created beings, including fallen spirits like demons. So here we are in Matthew 12, and now verse 29, or else how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Power was evident in the life of, and ministry of Christ. As we move on through Matthew, going progressively through it, Matthew 13 contains many of Jesus' parables. And I began counting up the parables through the four Gospels in which Jesus refers to the kingdom of God. By my count, I may have missed one or two here and there, but by my count, I counted 14 parables about the kingdom. 14 parables. They include the sower and the seed, the growing seed, which is unique to Mark, 
the parable of the tares, parable of the mustard seed, parable of yeast, parable of treasure hidden in the field, parable of the pearl great price, parable of the dragnet, not the old TV detective series, of course, but the parable of the dragnet, fishing net, parable of the unmerciful servant, parable of the laborers in the field, parable of the marriage feast of the king's son, parable of the ten virgins, parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Fourteen, by my count, parables. And they would be well worth your while during your feast to study. Uh, they would make fascinating material to add to the sermon I'm giving for you here today. Now, in Matthew 16, as we continue our way through Matthew, Matthew 16, starting in verse 18. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Peter was given authority in the church. Peter or is told, Jesus speaks to Peter, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, meaning on himself. In the gates of hell, Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, And I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Peter was given church leadership, which becomes evident in the book of Acts, because who is it that gives that first Pentecost sermon? Peter. And who is it that gives that strong testimony about his being used by God to welcome Gentiles into the church? In the first ministerial conference in Acts 15, it is Peter as well as Paul, but Peter's influence and leadership becomes evident because Christ had given him those keys of the kingdom, that authority within the church. Now, as we continue on to Matthew 19, he gives a warning about uh, wealth, how that can interfere with a person seeking the kingdom. Matthew 19 and verse 16. Matthew 19, 16. The story of the rich young ruler. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. But if you enter into life, keep the commandments. He said, Which ones? And he begins to... Jesus begins to name some well-known commandments. And the young man said in verse 20, All these things have I kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Verse 21. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said, Go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had, he had great possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say this to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they said, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, verse 26, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. As Jesus taught elsewhere, we cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. We must choose who was our Lord. 
And if mammon becomes our God, it will interfere with our pursuit of his kingdom. And so Jesus gives a warning to not allow material possessions to get in the way of serving him. Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. 21, 28. Well, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Lord, son, go work today in the vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented, <clears throat> and he went. Then he came to the second, said, Likewise. He answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when they saw it, when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. <clears throat> so those who enter God's kingdom are often those that are least expected, <clears throat> like these tax collectors and, and uh, fallen women, these uh, harlots of the time. They saw their need to repent, to adopt kingdom virtues. Those who thought they were already righteous have a problem. It's a stumbling block, <clears throat> excuse me, to them, and, and they begin to go another way instead of fully repenting and turning to Christ. <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew twenty-three thirteen that the Pharisees actually shut up the kingdom against um, people. Matthew twenty-three verse thirteen: But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow others to enter therein. So he gives a warning that there are leaders who will misuse their authority and lead people astray. So we need to be careful and not just follow anyone who proclaims himself a, a preacher. Now let's go to Mark's gospel. As his ministry began, Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was at hand. Mark 1, starting in verse 14. Mark 1. Verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Two things he calls upon his followers to do. Repent and believe. They're prerequisites for baptism, aren't they? There is nothing less than a complete reorientation of one's life around the kingdom of God. All other loyalties and commitments are of less importance, even including family and state. So we need to repent and believe. In Mark 4, verse 11, Mark 4, 11, He said to them, To you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come to them in parables. So he explains that the truth of the parables is evident to those who accept this call to repent and believe. It's a divine secret. It's only perceived by those who become Christ's true followers. It's a mystery to the world. Mark 4, verse 30. Mark 4, 30. He said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown in the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it's sown, 
It grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So the effects of the preaching of the gospel begins ever so small. Just a few band of followers. Maybe your local church group is quite small. It's like that mustard seed, ever so small, but it's going to grow. It's going to grow. And so God's kingdom will grow and eventually fill the earth. Now in Mark 9, verse 1, the transfiguration, which was a, a vision, as Matthew's version tells us. Mark 9, 1, he said to them, Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And they would see the kingdom in its power by a vision. So after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, leads them to a high mountain by themselves. He's transfigured. His clothes become shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten him. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us build tabernacles. And so the transfiguration was a just a little foretaste of the kingdom of God for these three. And they, they got to see Jesus in his glory by vision. So the transfiguration was a depiction of the coming glory and all the kingdom and all its glory and power. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13 is a section we often use during the Feast Tabernacles for the blessing of children ceremony. They brought young children to him, verse 13 of Mark 10, that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked him who brought them. Jesus, when he saw it, was greatly upset, and he said, Let the little children come to me, and don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever touched does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. He took him up in his arms, put his hands on him, and blessed him. <clears throat> you see, <clears throat> the blessing of little children is a ceremony that we see each year at the Feast of Tabernacles to remind all of us that we need to be God's children. Humble, teachable, trusting. These are kingdom virtues, brethren, that we need to live at all times prior to the full consummation of the kingdom. Now, at the last Passover, which is <clears throat> uh, the Last Supper, rather commonly called the Passover Jesus had with his disciples, he gave them symbols of his broken body, the bread, and the fruit of the vine. And he said he would again, he would in the, again eat that bread and drink from that vine in the kingdom of God. In particular, this is clear. In Luke's version, starting Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. And if you read that, you'll see that he anticipates a time when he will again observe this with his disciples, eat the bread, drink the wine in the kingdom of God. And so every year when we keep Passover, we are reflecting on a coming time when Jesus observes it with us. So let's go on to Luke's gospel now. Luke chapter Four, Luke chapter 4 and verse 42. Luke 4, 42. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him. And he tried to keep 
they tried to keep him from leaving them. And he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose have I been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So he had to go and preach the kingdom. He was not setting up the kingdom at that point. He was announcing its full coming with a, a future time. Now, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, some scholars call it the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6 and verse 20, he says this, He lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. You poor, and there were many poor in that first century who followed Jesus. And then in the early years of the church, that was equally true. And it's true today in God's church as well. But for those folks, yours is the kingdom of God. Luke 7 now, verse 28. We're taking a quick survey. Luke 7, 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He compares John. Among those born among women, there was never a greater prophet. And yet in the kingdom, even one considered least in the kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist was in his life. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus sends out his followers to preach the kingdom. Luke 9, 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. This is the mission he gave his disciples and later gives to the church as well. So the church is to continue where Jesus left off. And the book of Acts shows how the Holy Spirit worked through the church then to proclaim this gospel into all the world. Verse 10. And the disciples, the apostles, when they had returned, told him all they had done. And he took them aside privately to a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. But when the multitude saw it, they followed him and received them. He received them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. So healing was closely associated with his work. Now in, in uh, chapter 9, in verse 18, here's an example of Jesus' reluctance to be called Messiah. Luke 9:18. It happened as he was alone praying, his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the old prophets had risen again. He said, But who do you say I am? Peter said, You are the Messiah of God. He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. You see, what he was about to experience would not meet the expectations of many Jews of the first century, as I explained earlier in the sermon. So he was reluctant to accept that title Messiah openly in public because of that misunderstanding, so-called messianic secret. Luke 9:62 Luke 9:62 But Jesus said to him no one having put his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God So he tells us that once we put our hand in the plow we are to look to the future look to the horizon cut that straight furrow down that field and not allow it 
uh, other things to distract us and turn us away. Now in Luke 13, starting in verse 20. Luke 13, starting in verse 20. To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. So the work of the church is like a leavening agent. And this is the only positive example of leaven uh, as an illustration in our Bible. That the kingdom of God is like leaven that you put a little bit in and it permeates the rest. And so the work of the church is going to fill this entire earth like a leavening process. Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong used another analogy. The kingdom of God is an embryo. Today it's embryonic, but it's growing. This, this church as part of the kingdom, but not the full kingdom. It's the church is the kingdom of God in embryo, he explained to us. And so it's growing and it's proclaiming the kingdom's message. But someday there will be a birth. And we look forward to that time. Now in Matthew, uh, I should say Luke 13, Luke 13, 28 to 30. Jesus warns his enemies. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when they, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom and you yourselves thrown out. They'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down the kingdom. And indeed, there are last who will be first and first who will be last. They, These folks expected to be there, but Jesus says, you're going to see others there instead of yourselves. Now, as we go down to, uh, we're going to continue to work our way through the gospel here. Let's go down to Luke 18. Luke 18, starting in verse 28. But Peter said, See, we've left all and followed you. So he said, Surely I say to you, there is only there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children or for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come everlasting life. Everlasting life. So Jesus talked about the sacrifice that we pay in order to be part of that kingdom, be part of that work be part of god's church and he says you'll be more than compensated in time now in luke 19 the parable of the pounds or talents is all about the kingdom luke 19 starting in verse 11 and how he describes a certain nobleman going to a far country to receive a kingdom in return he gives his servants his 10 minus uh, each and they were to invest them and then, of course there were three different responses so this entire parable is to explain to us that in the meantime between now and his return you see he projects his return sometime off in the meantime we are to bear fruit with what he has given us <coughs> these pounds or minus <coughs> excuse me are to be used you see in order to grow and produce the work of god in the world <coughs> so He's going to reward according to the productivity of his disciples. Luke 21 has the um, Olivet Prophecy. In Luke's version, Luke 21, starting in verse 29, 
He spoke to them a parable saying, look at the fig tree and all the, the trees when they're already budding. You see and know for yourselves the summer is now near. So you likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. When you see all that's prophesied in this section coming to pass, know that we are very, very close. Now let's go on to John's gospel. John's gospel uses kingdom of God only in two verses, stating that a person cannot see the kingdom unless he is born again. That's both in John 3. John 3, 3 and 5. One of the greatest truths of the church of God is the fact that we will be born from above into the kingdom of God. That's John 3, 3 and verse 5. And that's it. John uses kingdom of God only in those two verses. So we have to be born again, born from above, at the second coming of Christ, when we, our bodies are fully transformed, the redemption of our bodies, as Paul calls it. It's a glorious truth in God's church. Now, in John 18, standing before Pilate on trial, this is an important section, though he does not use the full phrase, kingdom of God. Look at this, John 18, 36. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Not from here. Pilate said, Are you a king then? Jesus said, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. But he made clear, <clears throat> excuse me, this kingdom was not of this world, not of this political movement. He's not going to use human political government and military machine to install his coming kingdom. So the Gospels display a connection, but also a distinction between the church and the kingdom of God. Churches are groups of people. They are those who are, have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in them. They have repented and believed the gospel and they've responded to Christ. They're committed to him rather than merely being an institution. The church of God is a living organism. <clears throat> it is modeled on the Old Testament concept <clears throat> of Israel as the people of God. Israel as the people of God. And those who comprise the church follow Jesus as Messiah and Lord as he's correctly understood and taught in Scripture. And he wants them to be united. He calls them a body, the body of Christ. He calls them a house, God's household. He calls them God's temple. Three different analogies that he uses about this unity. So churches provide instruction, fellowship, prayer, symbolic acts, for its membership, and it works to serve God by preaching the gospel and by feeding the flock. That's the church. Now, the kingdom of God refers to the transcendently righteous power which was central in Jesus' teaching, as we have seen by this survey. The term kingdom of God, surprisingly, never appears in our Old Testament, in the King James, our new King James. Oh, the idea is there. God is royal, monarch, exercising royal prerogatives. 
That is there clearly in the Old Testament. But the phrase kingdom of God first occurs in Jewish pseudepigraphical works, one called the Psalms of Solomon, first century B.C. And that was a hymn that awaited the coming of Messiah to destroy the lawless Gentiles and unite Israel in righteousness. But by the time Jesus' ministry begins, this term kingdom of God is already commonly being used about something to come. And Jesus preached the kingdom, instructing his followers to pray for its coming. He worked miracles and exercised demons through its power. Now, his kingdom is not to be equated with Israel or any political, geopolitical power of his first coming. Rather, it is God's dynamic sovereignty throughout creation and eternity. So, in this Gospels, the kingdom is portrayed as being on the verge, it's at hand, but also yet to be consummated. So it's at hand for you and me. We are to respond, to repent and believe and live these virtues until it is finally consummated. It is at hand and yet it is to come. We see those both portrayed throughout Scripture. So the kingdom of God and the church are distinct but related doctrines of Scripture. They are to be neither equated nor radically separated. You might think of the kingdom of God as one huge circle and the church of God as one circle within a circle. And so we are those who currently follow kingdom values and virtues. We are God's people. We are called upon to preach this coming kingdom into all the world. And so we do. So the church belongs in the context of the kingdom since the kingdom is much broader than the church. So God's rulership includes the entire universe, including the church of God. So to equate church and kingdom as so-called church fathers did in the 2nd and 5th centuries is in error. The church is part of it, but it's certainly not its entire entirety. It's not the kingdom in totality. It will fill this entire universe. And so the church is dependent on this teaching of the kingdom. God's kingdom produced the church because when John the Baptist and Jesus, then the apostles preached it, they called upon people to repent and believe the gospel. They did. And so a group of followers were raised up, God's church. And then they in turn took that same message on to others. And the church today through our tithes and offerings, proclaims this kingdom message to the world. And in the meantime, we live as that group of faithful people who acknowledge God and God's sovereign rule. Jesus' first comment on the kingdom in Matthew was this, as we read in Matthew 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, during this feast, we have a reminder of the kingdom virtues that we are to live at all times as Christians. We are to live these kingdom virtues. For us, this is our time. And so for us, the kingdom, in that sense, is at hand. And what did Jesus say we are to do? Repent and believe the gospel.